I'm going to read now from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 12. And this is part of a series where I am simply picking up where we left off last week. So if you're wondering why I am speaking on the subject that I am tonight, it's, um, it has nothing to do with anything political going on in our church. It's not a shot over the bow to try to communicate indirectly. It's not to try to be cool and talk about sex. It's simply where we're rolling right now in the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 12 says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're a believer in Jesus, what I want you to hear tonight is the gospel proclaimed in a particular way that has a very unique and specific practical application to the way that we use our bodies. If you are not a believer in Jesus, then this is an opportunity for you to just listen in onto the people of God talking about a particular issue that is very relevant in our culture. Why do Christians think the way that they do about sex? Why do Christians have the, the, uh, the moral ethics that they do? What, what makes them think about their bodies in a particular way that is so, um, seems to be backwards and contradictory uh, to the world and the culture around us? The main point from the text that I've read tonight, I believe, is this. If you don't get anything else tonight, I want you to be able to take this home with you. That what we do with our body affects our relationship with Christ. It's a very simple point, but that's the point that, that the Apostle Paul makes through the whole text. We have a body, and James read from Psalm 139, it says, I am fearfully, wonderfully made. And God knew us, even in the womb and in the intricacy of the, the human body. God knows us, and he's given us a body. And the point of the Apostle Paul is simply this, that what we do with our body affects our relationship with Christ, particularly and uniquely what we do with our sexual organ affects our relationship with Christ. And the past sexual purity in the reasoning that the Apostle Paul gives 
is not from the thread of law. I hope you he uses the phrase, do you not know, over and over again. And he talks about Christ and our, and our being joined together with Christ, which is a proclamation of the gospel. It's not the threat of law saying, well, don't you do this, and, and, and threaten them with the weight of the law. There's a proclamation of the good news that you've been purchased. You've been bought. You belong to Christ, which is the gospel. But it's also uh, cross language. Not cross as in cruel, but cross as in the crucifixion. It's cross language. You've been purchased. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. That's vocabulary of the cross. And what Paul is doing now is he's doing something that he's been talking about all through the book is he's distinguishing a wisdom from the world from a wisdom of the cross. You see, the cross has its own wisdom. And Paul is saying, this is how practical the wisdom of the cross is. You can't just fold your hand and say, yes, it's a nice pious thought. I believe in the wisdom of the cross. It, it, it works its way down into the nitty gritty details even of the different organs of our life, or, of our bodies rather. And their sexual promiscuity, Paul makes plain, wasn't true freedom. Remember, you know what freedom is? Freedom isn't just the ability to say yes. Freedom is also the ability to say no. And their, their sexual promiscuity says it wasn't freedom as the, the text opens in talking about what everything is permissible, but really what their promiscuity was was a failure to grasp their identity in Christ. If you only knew, do you not know And so the general drift of the passage begins with this question of liberty, and it's in quotation marks in the English translation because it's probably lifted out of the vocabulary of Corinth that everything is permissible, everything is, is, uh, is lawful. That's how the passage begins, with this, with this notion of liberty, but as it works through the passage, it concludes with something far, far grander than simply liberty. And that grander thing that Paul speaks about that is so far and above beyond the, the, the joy of or the, the living in uh, um, Christian liberty and freedom is this. It's a vocation that has the possibility of bringing glory to God in our bodies. Do you see how that, that, that transcends? Paul says, if, if all you've got is liberty, if that's all that you're getting from the gospel, if that's the, way, the only thing that you think you're getting from Christ, then you're, you're, you're missing something tremendous. Not only is everything not beneficial for you, but you're missing the, an, an entire grasp of the Christian vocation in this world. Do you know that you can, in your body, bring glory to God? It's a tremendously high calling. And the premise for the thinking about glorifying God in our bodies is to develop this awareness that what we do with our bodies, we make Christ do also. By virtue, by nature of our union with him. And I'm going to explain that word union in just a moment. But what we do with our bodies, we make Christ do by virtue of his union to us. So in Corinth, there was an idea of liberty that we can do with our bodies 
Whatever we want and what we do with our bodies does in fact not matter. And I don't know exactly, Paul doesn't expound exactly what was going on in the Corinthian mind. It could have been some sort of a, a pre-Gnostic. Gnosticism wasn't full-blown. Uh, the, the Greek idea that the body is inherently evil, it's just a tent that needs to be folded and put to, put, put to rest, and it's only, the bo- it's only the, what's, what's inside the, the soul and the spirit that is of ultimate value. It could be an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology just means, means the end, uh, in wh- the way that we will live in the end in heaven, in bodies, that they've just laid hold of things uh, with regards to their bodies. And they think, well, what we do now doesn't matter because God has already saved us and it's like we're in heaven already. Or whatever it might be. But today I think we can easily understand the concept of what I do with my body doesn't matter. In the materialistic worldview in which we live, it's only reasonable. If you hold to a materialistic worldview where you believe that you came from, from some other creature out of an organic soup in another continent, then how could you reason rationally that what you do with your body matters? They believed it was temporary housing for the soul and what we do with it has no bearing for the soul. So, if you're walking through downtown Corinth, you can eat whatever you want, regardless of it was food used in idol worship. You have liberty. You can, you can eat whatever you want. Food goes into the bowels and it goes out. At least that's the general idea and what we hope for when, when food goes in, right? It goes in and it goes out. We have a food that goes into the stomach and the stomach Uh, It goes out, the food was made for the stomach, stomach is made for the food. And so it could be argued, when in the city, not only would I have liberty and freedom to eat whatever food I want, but it would also be permissible to have sex with a prostitute. Would be the same. What does it matter? It's just another function of a bodily organ. What's the difference between the stomach and the sexual organ? And the Apostle Paul says this, he says it doesn't follow. He, he intercepts their reasoning. He says it doesn't follow that because the stomach is for the food and the food is for the stomach that therefore sex is for the body and the body is for sex. He says, no, the body is for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. And Paul invests the body with a unique dignity and a purpose that transcends the temporary nature of our organs particularly our, our gastronomic system. And it got me thinking about heaven this week that you know, it says God will destroy both the, the food and the stomach. And that makes me kind of sad, actually. Uh, but, uh, well, part of it, I mean, I don't know what heaven will be like, quite honestly. But obviously we will have new bodies and, and they will be different. And our, our Lord had a body and, 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 and appeared to eat. But there will be apparently something that will be uh, entirely different with the gastronomic system. And so there, there's something that, that ways that Paul invests the body with, with the dignity and purpose, and I'm going to go through three things. The first is the resurrection. The second is the union with Christ. And the third is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Three things. The first is the resurrection, verse 14. Paul says this, Do you not, or God raised the Lord, Reference to the resurrection. God raised our Lord from the dead, and he will also raise us up by his power. The body is by no means temporary and should not be despised. And God confirms the dignity of the body 
the ultimate investment of dignity in the body by raising up our Lord in a body. Not only as a spirit, but not only did he come and take on a human body, which is the beginning of this investment in God's purpose and in design that, that we would have a body. It's God's purpose and intention that we would be physical flesh. It's not to be despised. And then not only, not only that, when, when our Lord went into the grave, the Lord raised him up. Now, I've put a lot of people in the grave. I'm a pastor. I've attended a lot of services where I've put bodies six feet in the ground. And we know what happens to those bodies. So, you know, don't, don't take that, that the reasoning about your current physical body so far that, that obviously what you have now, you're not taking it exactly as it is into heaven. Because it's going to, well, it's going to rot. That's what it's going to do. <laughs> but think about this, that, that there is a physical dimension to all of eternity that God showed by raising up Jesus from the grave in a body that, that should make us think that our body even now has an inherent dignity because it reflects something of God's purpose for us even in eternity. So don't think of it merely as a temporary piece of flesh to do whatever you wish with. And we'll talk about that a whole lot more when we get to the 15th chapter, the resurrection chapter, where Paul talks at length about the glorified body. The second thing is union with Christ. Verse 15 says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. In verse 17, he goes on to say this, something very similar, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Reference to the Holy Spirit. Become one spirit with the Lord. Paul is arguing a Christian ethic, one of sexual fidelity from, from, and, and sexual immorality from a theological reality. Okay? I, 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 I want to just pause for a second and, and, and make sure you get that that the way that Christians think about our bodies and our sexual organ and, and, and sexual immorality isn't some remnant from, from another age. It, it, it's not an institutional opinion that is just old and needs to be folded and, and, and sent packing. It is something that is rooted in a truth that is timeless. And I, I hope you're familiar with this idea because the scripture does it all the time. It, it doesn't just say, hey, say, hey, and, and, and threaten us, say, this is the path you must walk on. But it, it sets before us certain realities about God's dealings with us that say, hey, do you understand the implications? And that's what's going on here. Do you not know, Paul says, do, do you not know if you, if you knew, then you would flee sexual immorality. If you knew that when you unite yourself to a prostitute, that you are uniting Christ to that prostitute by virtue of Christ's proximity to you, would you do that? And he says, never. Now, there is something very unique about sexual sin. A lot of people don't like to hear that, and they say, well, why does the church talk so much about sexual sin? You know, if there's lots of other kinds of sin out there in the world, and, and uh, there's lots of ways that, that Christian people sin. Why do, we, 
it's, un- it's not fair, it, it, it's unchristian, we shouldn't look down on, on, on people if they suffer from this particular ailment. And it's, it's true that sexual sin is not more, I don't know, it is more defiling, but it, it's not more inherently sinful. Like, it, and that's not the claim that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul is making, that it's more sinful than other sins. If, if, you're, if you're living in this world and, and you love money more than God, then your soul's in danger. There's, there's no doubt about that. Idolatry is a, is a tremendous sin. But there is something that is unique about sexual sin because it is a violation of a relationship which no other sin is like. And, and Paul appeals to creation. Okay, this is the root of, of Christian thinking. It, it, it's, it's something that goes all the way back. God invests something in an activity between a man and a woman all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. And this is what he says, that, that a man and a woman will become one flesh. And God has intended that relationship between a man and a woman to signify something more than just the function of our sexual organ. Do you understand that? that? That God has attached something to it. You couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. A church couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. God has done it. In his wisdom, in his, in his providence, he has attached something to that relationship between a man and a woman that transcends the actual act. And it signifies something of our relationship with God. All throughout the Bible, there's something that is signified to us in a man, with the oneness of a man and a woman and marriage. And, and it's something about God's relationship to us. And, and I, I hope that this is something that you understand about your relationship with God. That he is your lover. That he is your covenant lover. That he is your steadfast, faithful lover, that he will never fail you in his love, that he has bound himself to you in a way that he will not let you go, that he is a jealous lover. And so all through the scriptures, all through the prophets, the, the, the relationship between a man and a woman is used to articulate something that, that transcends the, the relationship in a home to describe God's wanting of fidelity from his people, particularly the Old Testament book of Hosea, for example. And I read recently uh, through the book of Revelation and noticed that Revelation chapter 17, uh, the, entire, the, the entire dynamic of, of Christians living in a world that is full of seduction, that is full of idolatry, that is full of, 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 of things that, that draw God's people away to, fall, uh, to follow false Christ is described as the power of a prostitute goes back all the way to Jezebel in the Old Testament. So God has ordained this, this special pleasure of marriage, not merely as a physical act of pleasure, but to help us understand how he binds us to himself through Christ. We have union with Christ. And this is how salvation has to be understood. That nothing less than this, that God has mysteriously, Paul calls it a mystery in other places, that God has mysteriously and really bound us to Christ by the power 
of the Holy Spirit. Now, something that has helped me over the years is to understand that why does the Apostle Paul use the phrase in Christ 164 times through the Bible? And people say, well, Barry, you like prepositions too much. Well, it's not my fault. The Apostle Paul constantly makes me think about what does the word in mean? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a word that, that speaks of a particular kind of proximity. Remember my grammar school teacher in middle school drawing a, a box on the chalkboard. Do they still have chalkboards in school? They still throw the thing at you if you talk in class and it poofs off your head? draw a box on the chalkboard and, and describe prepositions. Prepositions are words in the English language that describe our proximity to something. You can be above the box, you can be under the box, you can be beside the box, you can be after the box, or you can be in the box. And all of those prepositions I've come to understand. Who knows that, that Miss George would have been teaching me such a profound theological reality later in my life. But I've, I've, all of those different prepositions are different religions and they're all in the church. And I've, I've lived in the dynamic of all of them and, and have come to try to embrace and understand what does it mean, this, this dynamic that the Apostle Paul is talking about, this, this actual union with Christ where God has put me in Christ, not, not above Christ. Some people are above Christ and then, well, they'll listen to him once in a while, but generally speaking, they're doing pretty good on their own, thank you very much. But if they're in trouble or under Christ, the people who live in, in tremendous guilt and fear and, and subservience uh, in an unhealthy way, or beside Christ, beside the box, beside Christ, it, you know, Christ is not your buddy. He's your dearest friend, but he's your dearest friend because he's your, new, you, your unique savior. And we're not merely Christ followers. We are in Christ followers is what we become, but it is not what makes us a Christian. I hope you understand that. All of us who are Christians become Christ followers, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is this, that by his mercy and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God puts us into Christ, and we become Christ followers. That's what makes us a Christian. He puts us into his death, into his resurrection, into his life, into his very mind, the Apostle Paul says. Have the mind of Christ in you. And whatever becomes true of Christ, it becomes true of you when you lay hold to him by faith. And Christ, as a, as a faithful lover of people that he came into this world to reclaim for God, loves you steadfastly and dwells with you. It's, it's a profound mystery. The Apostle Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Romans chapter 6 says that I have been put into his death, into his resurrection, that I might share in his life. So Paul says, if, if you understood this, what would you do? <laughs> what would you do when you face sexual temptation? You'd run. You would flee sexual immorality like, like Joseph it doesn't say simply to restrain yourself from it. Flee from it. What would it look like for you to flee from sexual immorality? You know, 
it's, it's not a, a list of rules of, well, you know, Christians can't do this and they can't do that. that that's the whole uh, permissive thing that the Apostle Paul started about. Say, so you're, you're going to go wrong going down that road. Let, let's think about it this way. Let's think about the possibility of glorifying God in your body. What would it look like for you to flee from sexual immorality? You know, f- for us, different than what it looked like for our parents generation ago. And for our grandchildren, it's going to look very, very different again. Wow, you know, I, I like to read tech news and what's going on in the world of technology is pretty insane when it comes to the depravity of the human mind and with the way that it likes to use technology. What Microsoft is doing with augmented reality, uh, other companies are doing with virtual reality, uh, artificial intelligence is the big thing on the horizon, robotics. Wow, I, I can't imagine what it will look like in two or three generations to flee immorality, but what does it look like for you? You know, what, is it your screen time? You know, do you got privacy zones on your cell phone that nobody can see? Is there sports that you like to watch because they're salacious? And we can excuse that. Hey, it's just sports. Flee, the Apostle Paul says. The third thing is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 says this. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Now, there's nothing strange physiologically being described here. Nothing that will show up on your radiology tests when you have an x-ray done. We talk about God dwelling in the heavens. And there was an astronaut in heaven generations, decades ago, saying, yeah, I've been up there and I didn't see him. Well, that, that's not, and we'll never see him on a telescope. And I, I, it's pretty amazing what you can see through those telescopes in space now. Wow, I saw a picture of a black hole the other day. It just blew my mind, the kinds of things that they can they see with technologies or with, with things that are out there. But that, that's not what we mean, that, yeah, if we can find a telescope, we can find God because he lives and dwells in the heavens. No, it, it's talking about the presence of God, that the presence of God is in the heavens. He is everywhere. He, he fills all things by his very presence. It's all about the presence when we talk about where God lives and where God dwells. But it also has to do with this very consistent biblical idea of how God works in three persons. Do you know that God works in three persons to save you? He works as Father, Son, and Spirit. Exercises all of the, all of the persons of the Godhead, not as three gods, but as three persons in order to effectually make you his own. The work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of of the Spirit. So Paul is, is, is conscious, always conscious. The Bible always speaks of God working in a Trinitarian way, and that's what this is all about, that don't you know that, that Christ lives in you? He dwells in you. God has united his Son to you. He's done it by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you in order that you would glorify God. And that's what Jesus was all about. Jesus is the Son of God, lived in the power of the Spirit, he attributed all of his works to the power of the Spirit for one single purpose, to glorify his heavenly Father in heaven. It's, a, it, 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 it's, it's all about that. That's what explains Paul's reference to this incredible description of the truth of the presence of the Holy Spirit 
in our lives. And the word temple signifies that presence. That's what a temple is. It, it's not architecture. Come on, it, it, I don't care how pretty you build a building. It, it's, it's not a temple unless it has a presence. It's the presence that makes a temple. And that's what makes our bodies temples. It's the presence. It doesn't matter how big you are, how small you are, or fortunately how, uh, how tall you are. It, uh, <laughs> it has not to make us vain about our bodies. Uh, or to compare, you know, well, one, one or the other. It, 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 it's all about the presence of God. And, and where else would you get the life of Christ? Paul talked in chapter 2, let the mind of Christ be in you. Well, where else would you get the mind of Christ? How are you going to get hold of the mind of Christ? If the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in you, but if the Spirit of God dwells in you, I tell you, there, there's one thing He wants to do in you, is to give you the mind of Christ. That you would think like Christ about glorifying God. So, in conclusion, Paul says glorify God. And if that's all it said, you would think, well, yes, I understand that, glorify God. Do you know what the word glorify means? It means God's fame that we participate in the vocation of God's fame and reputation on earth. But it doesn't just say glorify God. Did I mention our late prepositions? Glorify God in your body. It's the vocation. In your body. It's an amazing, it, it, it's an amazing prospect for us. It's an amazing calling that we could participate in the fame of God through something so simple. And yet, so easily tripped up in. And it should come as no surprise to us that, that any time that there is an affiliation with anything and Jesus, that it's going to be all about this one purpose, and that purpose is to, to be all about the glory of God. You, there, there's no experience that you can, can claim with Jesus. There's, there, there's, there's no affiliation that you can claim to have with Jesus if it isn't all about this purpose, and that is to glorify God. Jesus would have nothing to do with you if it didn't have to do with that object. It, it's not all about us. It's all about God. And God allows us to participate in the work of the Godhead in order that God's fame would be on earth in our bodies. It's an amazing thing. But believe me, that's what it's all about. It's not for your pride. It's not for my pride. It's not for the church's pride. It's, it's for the, the reputation and the glory of God. That's what Jesus is all about. If you walk onto a car lot, I like cars. That's one of my weaknesses, actually. And I talk to the Lord uh, <coughs> Uh, about it all the time, like things that go fast. It just, it's just something that's in me. I'm wired that way. A lot of things I don't struggle with, that's one of them. And you walk onto a car lot, and you, you see coming, someone coming out of the door, and you, you look the other way and think, oh boy, you know, can I get out of here? Or you know, has he seen me already? You know exactly why he's coming out the door. He's not going to come out and say, hey, buddy, want to play cards? You know, hey, you're hanging around here. Why don't we go golf? Why don't we go play tennis, eh? No, he's coming out of those doors for one single purpose. He wants to sell you a car. I know it's a terrible analogy. Jesus comes down for one single purpose, to own you that we would glorify God. That's what he's all about. The one single driving purpose, that we would glorify God. And so sexual fidelity is set before us as a unique way that God is glorified in our bodies because it speaks of a faithful lover. 
who has united himself to us to redeem us. Thank the Lord. Uh, Hallelujah. And praise his holy name. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us. Lord, lift Christ high, I pray. Fill us with the Spirit. Make yourself known in us and through us, we pray. We are your, your willing, desirous vessels. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.